A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you, not one of them has failed, but just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things, until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for giving us your word. This word, which is the word of Christ, this word which reveals Christ, our Savior to us from beginning to end. And yet we confess that we need to have ears to hear and to receive this word. So I pray that you would be my helper by your Spirit. Oh God, I cannot do with my own words what I'm desperate to see done among us today. It will be your Spirit's work if this preaching causes people to pass from death to life, or if this preaching causes people to be built up in our faith in Christ's likeness. So I pray for our good, for the glory of your Son, that you would work savingly among us, that you would attend the preaching of the Word in power. In Jesus' name, amen. Franklin Roosevelt died suddenly in Warm Springs, Georgia in April 1945, and by the time he died, he had been president for a little over 12 years. He had been elected president four consecutive times. No president before that had been elected more than twice or had served for more than eight years. FDR had led the country as we came out of the Great Depression, and as we watched and then entered World War II, and now suddenly he was gone. And his vice president, Harry Truman, became president. And Truman said when he learned he would be president after FDR's death, quote, I felt like the moon, the stars, and all the planets had fallen on me. Because there was still an enemy to defeat. Germany was nearly finished. Victory in Europe Day was less than a month away when Truman took office, but Japan was still proving a formidable opponent. And so Truman, this trembling successor of a larger-than-life leader like FDR, knew that it was his charge to lead the Allies to victory. 
And he did that, as you may know, in large measure by deciding to use Robert Oppenheimer's atomic bombs on two Japanese cities, leading to Japan's surrender and the end of World War II. One trembling successor comes on the heels of a larger-than-life leader. And something very similar is happening in the book of Joshua. The larger-than-life Moses has died. And his trembling successor, Joshua, is tasked with leading a nation to victory over her enemies. And I wonder if you know who the enemies are in the book of Joshua. Do you really know? Do you know why it is that God has given us this book? Do you know why the events in the book of Joshua are good news for you? Well, I hope you want to know those things if you don't know them already. And we're going to talk about them as we go through the book of Joshua. I'd ask you to take out the cream-colored insert in your bulletin that has the sermon outline on one side and then the introduction to the book of Joshua on the reverse. If you didn't get a bulletin, you can find this at cmcvermont.org gather. But I'd like to direct your attention to that uh, insert. And I just want to briefly orient you to the book as we get started in it today. I'm looking at the part of the page that says summary of the book of Joshua, and you'll notice that I haven't answered the typical questions that we ask sometimes about books like authorship and date, because we don't know entirely the answer to either of those questions regarding the book of Joshua. Certainly, Joshua was responsible for a lot of the contents of this book. Joshua chapter 24, verse 26 says, and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. But it's clear that Joshua didn't write the whole of this book because it ends with his death and where he was buried and what took place in the nation of Israel after Joshua died. It's hard to be eyewitness to those kinds of things. Regarding date, the events of the book of Joshua take place beginning roughly 40 years after the exodus from Egypt. But it's hard to know when all of the content of the book of Joshua was finally compiled into one volume. It seems clear that the book in its initial form was written during or very soon after the events that we'll see because of verses like Joshua 6.25 that talk about Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho that we'll meet in chapter 2, still living in Israel to this day. And the book of Joshua was authoritative to Israel right alongside the five books of Moses from an early time. But again, it appears not to have arrived in its final form until sometime after the events in this book because Joshua chapter 15 verse 63 talks about the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out, so the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. King David put a stop to that when he drove the Jebusites out of Jerusalem, his capital city, in 2 Samuel chapter 5. So portions of the book of Joshua were early but it looks like the book in its final form came to, uh, came to be around the time of King David's reign. But regardless of the questions of who compiled the book and when, you need to know that Joshua was an accepted part of the Hebrew Bible long before Jesus' day and that the New Testament's authors regarded Joshua as canonical and authoritative because folks in the New Testament refer to events and people in the book of Joshua. This book is like the other books of the Bible, breathed out by God, and those who wrote its contents were carried along by God the Holy Spirit as they wrote so that it is without error, it's entirely true and trustworthy and authoritative. Well, leaving behind the authorship and date questions, let's consider briefly the occasion and purpose of the book. Occasion asks the question, what was going on when the book was written? And the purpose gets at the question, why was this book written? And notice what I've given you in the insert. The Lord granted the children of the first Exodus generation to come out of the wilderness and occupy Canaan. The book of Joshua chronicles the progress of that occupation and serves 
to remind Israel that the Lord remembered his covenant with Abraham. Now, God wanted to have recorded for the nation of Israel the events surrounding how the congregation of Israel made its way from the wilderness in the Sinai Peninsula where they had wandered for 40 years because of their rebellion and unbelief into Canaan. How is it that the congregation had come to occupy land that had once been occupied with many other tribes and peoples? The book of Joshua is answering that question. But it's not merely, this book is not merely a historic record of events. This book is showing that God is a covenant-keeping God because it shows that God made good on His promise to Abraham, a promise that we're going to look at a little more closely later in this sermon. The book of Joshua reveals from beginning to end that the Lord is a God who keeps covenant with His people. And there was never a time in Israel's history when they didn't need a reminder of that. So I regard the occasion and purpose of the book to be both the events chronicled in the book, and Israel's need to have a record of God's covenant love and faithfulness toward his people. And that takes us to the theme of the book of Joshua. What is this book about? Look with me at the theme. The people and events in Joshua are types of the person and work of the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has and will both conquer his enemies and cause his people, Christians, to dwell with him at peace in a restored, universal, promised land. Now, we who are going to preach from the book of Joshua believe, as I've said, that this book was inspired by God the Holy Spirit. We believe that what it chronicles happened, happened exactly as the book says. That means we believe that the walls of Jericho fell down because the Lord made them to fall down when the trumpet sounded and the people shouted. And we believe that God really did cause the sun to stand still in the sky while Israel fought against the Amorites. And we believe everything else that this book says happened. And yet, you need to understand that the reason God the Holy Spirit inspired this book reaches beyond the events of this book. What the book of Joshua is about isn't less than what the events this book records tells us, but there's a fuller sense, a sense that God the Holy Spirit would have us read this book with. We're to understand the people and events in this book, namely Joshua and his military and spiritual leadership of Israel, as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. Now, what do I mean when I use the word type? When we talk about a type, we usually are talking about a kind, like pepperoni pizza is a type of pizza, a Corvette is a type of car, but I want you to put that meaning of type out of your mind for this discussion. When we say, as we're going to say a lot in this book, that Joshua is a type of the Lord Jesus, or that the conquest of Canaan is a type of the conquest of Christ's enemies, we're using type in a different way than we're used to. For our purposes, type, a type is an event or person or thing like the tabernacle or the temple or institution like the Hebrew sacrificial system or the Hebrew monarchy. A type is an event a person, a thing, or institution that has its fullest and final meaning in Jesus Christ's person and work. Let me say that again. A type is an event or person or thing or institution that has its fullest and final meaning in Jesus Christ's person and work. A good place to go to read some more about all that is a book by a fellow named Edmund Clowney, Preaching Christ in All of Scripture. And so you'll notice from this theme, we're still talking about the theme here, that we're regarding Joshua, the leader of the nation of Israel, as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a pretty neat reason for that. It's one of the reasons we regard him as a type. Joshua and Jesus 
have the same name, Yehoshua. Because of how both those names, Joshua and Jesus, got into English, that's been obscured, but their name is, is the very same. The name Joshua is in Hebrew the name Jesus and vice versa. But Joshua is a type of Christ not only by virtue of his name, Yehoshua, which means the Lord, Yahweh, saves, but also because of who Joshua was and what he did. Joshua was the leader of God's people. He led them through the Jordan River into the land of promise. We're going to unpack how those things point to Christ as we go through the book. Joshua is a type of Christ because under his leadership, the promised land was subdued and her inhabitants were conquered and in some cases slaughtered. And Joshua is a type of Christ because he demonstrated covenant faithfulness to the Lord and called the people to covenant faithfulness. In all those ways, Joshua points to the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. The greater Joshua leads God's people, those who belong to the new covenant, by faith. He's rescued his people from the waters of judgment and death and caused us to pass through unscathed into the place where we dwell in God's presence. The Lord Jesus conquers all of our enemies and we with him, including conquering our sin and at the last day, fully and finally conquering our last enemy, death. And of course, the Lord Jesus demonstrates perfect covenant faithfulness, covenant obedience to the Father, and calls His people likewise to keep covenant with the Lord. I want to direct your eyes once again to the theme, and I want you to see that there's an already and not yet nature to how this conquest of Canaan is a type of the Lord Jesus' work for His people. In the theme, you'll notice that I said that Jesus has and will conquer his enemies and cause us to dwell with him. There's a sense in which, as I said, Christ has already done those things in his crucifixion and resurrection. He's already crushed the serpent's head. He's already begun to plunder his kingdom. He's already rescued us from sin and death and the devil so that we already right now dwell in God's presence with Christ. And yet, there's a fuller sense of those things yet to come. We haven't yet come to fully occupy the land. Our last enemy is yet to be defeated. We're still waging war against Satan and his demons under the leadership of the Lord Jesus the captain of our faith. And when he returns and we finally lay down our swords and his conquest is complete, we will have peace and rest on every side, not on some postage stamp sized plot of land in the Middle East, but in a restored universe, the new heavens and new earth, the true universal promised land. And we'll dwell there in resurrection bodies and we'll dwell in person with Christ and his people eternally in peace and rest with no fear of enemies. That's where we're getting to, and the book of Joshua is telling us that on every page. The victory that Joshua wins for and with Israel in this book is not the final victory. Christ's victory at the end of the age, when all things will finally be put in subjection under his feet, that's the final victory, and the book of Joshua tells us that victory is coming, that it is sure. That's the theme, but all of that wouldn't have fit on the page. <laughs> so how has it worked out in the book of Joshua? Well, you'll see that in the outline. The book divides quite nicely into two halves. Chapters 1 through 12 talk about how Israel conquers Canaan. Chapters 13, 13 through 24 talk about what Israel does after they come to occupy the land. And then each of those two big halves divide cleanly. Chapters 1 to 5 chronicle the nation of Israel being led by Joshua through the Jordan into Canaan, into the Promised Land. Chapters 6 through 12 tell how the various occupying forces were routed by Israel. Then chapters 13 through 21 are the record of how the land was divvied up among the tribes, and chapters 22 through 24 contain three addresses to Israel from Joshua, all of which contain elements 
of calls to covenant faithfulness. It's appropriate that that comes at the end of the book because the fact that the Lord had placed Israel in the land meant that he had been faithful to his covenant to Abraham, and now there was a faithfulness to the Lord that was required of Israel. And so how is it that these big sections of Joshua preach the theme? Well, the passing through the Jordan under Joshua's leadership typifies how Christ's people are brought by and with him into the land of promise, the place where God dwells. We live there now spiritually. Do you know, Christian, that it's appropriate for you to say that right now you do dwell with God? We dwell in God's presence now in and through Christ. The conquering of the inhabitants of Canaan typifies the gospel ministry that we're engaged in now. It's, it's so fun to preach when your heart has already been made happy in the Lord. And when I heard Craig rehearse that we're going to see Sean and Courtney Hamill and Melissa Shaw baptized today, I can't tell you what joy that brought me to consider that we're baptizing because God is still plundering the enemy's camp. He has rescued from death and sin. He has rescued from Satan's kingdom, Sean and Courtney and Melissa. Hallelujah. That's still going on. All of that laying waste to the enemy's camp is happening when we preach the gospel and people repent and believe. We're still in the conquest on this side of Jesus' serpent-crushing death and resurrection. The apportionment of the land... Chapters 13 through 21 are a type of Christ's work. But as I said, the land that Christ's people are going to receive is far better than any of the land the tribes receive. We're going to inherit a restored universe. And in chapters 22 through 24, the instructions concerning covenant faithfulness typify the covenant faithfulness that God's Holy Spirit has already caused us to begin to live out when we are made partakers of the new covenant. His Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us and causes us to walk in God's statutes and to obey His commands. And they anticipate the perfect covenant faithfulness that we'll offer to God in eternity. And it's all because of the perfect covenant faithfulness that the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, rendered to the Father on our behalf. If any of that seems confusing, stay tuned. We're going to unpack all those ideas over the next several weeks as we preach through Joshua in September and October. But let's get into the text of Joshua. Go with me to Joshua chapter 1 and verse 1. If you're not familiar with how the Bible is put together, this is the sixth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Very near the beginning of your Bibles. Joshua chapter 1. And follow along with me as I read the first nine verses of this book. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For 
The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Chapter 1 of Joshua consists of two charges for Israel to go and occupy Canaan, the promised land. The first charge is found in our text today, chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. And it's a charge that the Lord issues to Joshua. The second charge is found in verses, chap, uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. We're going to see it in next week's text, Lord willing. It's a charge from Joshua to the nation of Israel. But this week, we're looking at the Lord's charge to Joshua. And in verses 1 and 2, that charge is stated. The whole course of the next 24 chapters is set in these opening verses. Moses is dead because he struck the rock for water for the grumbling, complaining Israelites in Numbers 20. Instead of speaking to the rock as the Lord commanded him to do, Moses has died without getting to the promised land. God allowed him to look on it from afar before his death, but his feet didn't go there. Think about what a season this must have been in the life of the nation of Israel. Israel's leader for 40 plus years, the man by whom miraculous plagues were visited upon Egypt, the man whose arm was an instrument in the Lord's hand to part the Red Sea and to close its waters back up, the man with whom the Lord would speak face to face as a man speaks to his friend, Exodus 33 says. The man who would lead the hundreds of thousands, the millions of Israelites, the man who climbed Sinai to receive the law written by God himself, the man whom God answered the prayer to see the glory of God. Talk about casting a long shadow, my goodness. A man about whom it was said in Deuteronomy 34, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. There hasn't arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses. And now... He's dead. And Israel needs a new leader. And that leader is Joshua, Moses' right-hand man. Joshua is described in Deuteronomy 34 as a man full of the spirit of wisdom, a man who demonstrated himself to be faithful to the Lord. Maybe you remember in Numbers 13, Joshua, along with Caleb, says to the congregation of Israel after spying out the promised land, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not Fear them. That's what Joshua and Caleb say. The other spies, you'll remember, were terrified to consider going into the land. They came back with reports of fearing the inhabitants of the land. They said that the Israelites saw themselves as no more than grasshoppers as over against those who dwelled in Canaan. But Joshua and Caleb didn't have that fear. Not because they trusted in themselves, but because they knew that the Lord would be faithful to his word. And it's this Joshua who's the Lord's man to succeed Moses as Israel's leader and to take them into the land that the Lord promised to Abraham and Abraham's seed. And so the Lord says to Joshua here in verse 2 of Joshua 1 that he's to be Israel's leader now that Moses is dead. And Joshua is to arise and to go through the Jordan River along with the enormous congregation of Israel and to go into the land that the Lord is going to give to Israel. I want you to take note of that language in verse 2. Do you see it? Go into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. This land is going to be a gift 
from the Lord to Israel. It will be his hand that brings them victory, as we'll see throughout. So there's the charge. And then beginning in verse 3, we see the Lord giving to Joshua the assurance that Joshua is going to have success in doing what the Lord is charging Joshua to do. The language here in verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I've given to you. It's nearly identical to what the Lord tells Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy 11. God is saying, wherever you place your foot, Joshua, I've given it to you. That has to be a comfort and an assurance to Joshua. Surely, Joshua knew that the Lord had made this promise to Israel through Moses, and now the Lord is repeating it. He's making the same promise to Joshua. What a comfort. Israel's leader has changed, but Israel's God hasn't changed. And the promises that Israel's God has made to Israel haven't changed. And then in verse 4, the Lord tells Joshua what's going to be the scope of the conquest. From the desert wilderness south of Canaan, all the way up to Lebanon at the north, and from the Mediterranean, that's the Great Sea, to the west, all the way to the Euphrates River to the east. Now I want you to stop and consider what it is that the Lord is pledging to Joshua here. Because this is a demonstration, as we've been saying this morning, of the Lord remembering his covenant with Abraham. Keep in mind what God says in verse 4 here in Joshua chapter 1, and listen as I read to you from Genesis chapter 15, when the Lord reiterates his covenant with Abraham. Genesis 15, 18, God says to Abraham, he's Abram at this time, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Do you see that the language that we see here in Joshua 1 is another way of talking about the land scope that we see the Lord promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. God is remembering his covenant with Abraham. And why is it that Joshua can lead Israel with assurance of victory? Not because Joshua himself is any great shakes, even though the Lord promises Joshua in verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. No, it's because the Lord says also in verse 5, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. The Lord was with Moses as his protector and advocate and comforter and guide and mighty demonstrations of power, and so too will the Lord be with Joshua. I have to think that as the successor to Moses, that was comforting to Joshua. He need never fear. He's going to have some moments in this book where fear would look to be appropriate. But Joshua need never fear because the great God of heaven who has already demonstrated his superiority over Egypt, uh, Egypt's idols and their pharaohs, the God who parted the Red Sea, who miraculously provided water and food and life for Israel in the desert has pledged, I will be with you. This all-sovereign, all-powerful God whose mighty and majesty and splendor promises Joshua, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. That's the reason that Joshua can lead Israel to battle in the promised land with calm, resolve, and assurance. Because God is for Joshua and is pledging always to be with him, never to leave him or forsake him. And then in verses 6 through 9, our text has a threefold exhortation from the Lord to Joshua to be strong and courageous. Now, I called Joshua trembling earlier. I don't know how much he was trembling. I don't know if he was a man who needed extra encouragement. But the Lord sure tells people to encourage Joshua. 
The Lord told Moses at least twice in both Deuteronomy 1 and Deuteronomy 3 to go and encourage and strengthen Joshua because of the role that God had for Joshua to play, namely leading Israel to take possession of the promised land. And so the Lord says to Joshua in verse 6, Be strong and courageous for, that's because, Be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. The Lord knows as he's preparing Joshua for this call that Joshua's going to face times when he'll be tempted to think that Israel won't be able to take all the land. Because before this book is over, sometimes Israel's going to be defeated in battle. Sometimes the battle's going to be very pitched indeed. It won't be at all clear who's going to win. Not all the fighting's going to be as easy as Jericho will be. And so the Lord assures Joshua that he can lead the people with strength and courage, grounded not in himself, but in the Lord, who is keeping the promise that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God swearing to keep his promise means something because this God is able to keep every promise that he makes. He's promised to give Israel this land, and so they shall have it. The Lord tells Joshua again to be strong and very courageous in verse 7. This time, though, the Lord connects this exhortation with a call to obedience, to faithfulness to God's law. He says, Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. He says in verse 8, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. In the time of the old covenant, the time of the law of Moses before Jesus' death and resurrection, those who had saving faith in the Lord demonstrated that faith with obedience to the law of Moses. They were always saved by grace through faith in the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, They didn't obey so as to be saved, but they did obey the law of Moses because they had been saved, because they had faith in God. And that's what the Lord is talking about here with Joshua. But I want you to be clear in your minds that the law of Moses is a covenantal arrangement. It's not merely a system of do's and don'ts. And so what God is really saying to Joshua here is, if you're going to be fit to be the leader of my people, you must keep covenant with me. You must observe my law. You mustn't turn from it to the, to the right or to the left. And God says here in verses 7 and 8 that if Joshua keeps covenant with the Lord, if he's faithful to the Lord, Joshua will enjoy all the blessings that God has promised for covenant faithfulness in places like Deuteronomy 28. Joshua will enjoy abundant wombs and fields and herds. He'll enjoy victory over enemies. He'll enjoy abundance in treasure and abundance in preeminence and power and land over other tribes and nations and peoples. And since Joshua is the leader of Israel, as Joshua goes in covenant faithfulness, so goes Israel. If Joshua will be faithful to the Lord, he'll prosper and the nation he leads will prosper. That's what the Lord is saying here in verses 7 and 8. Be strong and very courageous, Joshua, because if you keep covenant with me, I will cause you and those under you to prosper. And then for a third time, in verse 9, the Lord tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. He fleshes it out, doesn't he? Look with me. Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for, again, because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. How could Joshua not be strong and courageous? How could he be frightened or dismayed when the God who has done all of these mighty acts before Joshua's very eyes when the God who has acted and spoken so graciously and mercifully to Joshua, how could Joshua not be strong and courageous when that God has said to him, I, the Lord, Yahweh, the God who keeps covenant, I will be with you wherever you go. 
When I read Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, it's easy for me to imagine a very similar charge going forth from the Father to the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father did give a charge to His Son. Jesus said in John 6, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The father gave his son a charge. He sent his son to the world to do what the Lord is telling Joshua to do here, to conquer the enemies of God and his people and to lead his people into the land that he's promised them. That was the charge the father gave to the son. Jesus has accomplished that spiritually by his death and resurrection. He continues to accomplish it by his spirit through the church and our gospel proclamation now. And it's what he's going to finish doing at the last day when he returns. He's going to conquer the enemies of God's people and he's going to lead us to the land God has promised. A land of blessing that is a land of blessing because it is where God dwells. And surely, the father had to speak to his son in his humanity a word similar to God's word to Joshua three times here in chapter 1. Surely, the father had to say to the son in his humanity, be strong and courageous. Now, don't struggle with Jesus and his humanity needing to be strengthened and encouraged for the suffering for which he had come to the world. Hebrew says that Jesus cried out to the Father with a loud crying and tears. The Gospels record angels coming to minister to Jesus. In the garden before his death, Jesus sweats, as it were, great drops of blood when he's agonizing in prayer in Gethsemane before the cross. The son needed the assurance that his father would not abandon his soul to the grave or let his holy one see corruption. Like Joshua, the Lord Jesus in his humanity was comforted by knowing his father would not eternally leave him or forsake him. Jesus surely derived comfort and assurance that his father would be with him wherever he went because of Jesus' perfect covenant faithfulness because Jesus didn't turn aside from obedience to the law of Moses to the right or to the left. He kept covenant with God without fail. Joshua chapter 1 verses 1 to 9 preach Christ to us because God's charge to Joshua is the Father's charge to the Son. And the grounding of God's comfort and assurance for Joshua is the same as the grounding of the Father's comfort and assurance for His Son before He suffered in the place of His people for our sins at Calvary. And so how do we make use of these first verses of the book of Joshua for our lives? Well, I'm putting the application under the heading of trusting in the greater Joshua. And I think we can do that in at least two ways. First, by trusting the greater Joshua to accomplish entire victory over his enemies, which turn out to be also our enemies if we belong to Christ. Now, as we're going to go through the book of Joshua, the elephant in the room is that because of Israel's failure to perfectly obey God, they didn't drive out every last enemy tribe or people group. And the scope of the land that God tells Joshua about in our text today didn't really come under Israel's control until the time of David's reign as king. And that whole plot of land remained under Israelite control only temporarily and then never again, not even up to the present day. But you can trust in the greater Joshua because he does not fall short of conquering his enemies. He finishes what he starts. He was charged by the Lord to go and to conquer his enemies and to win for himself a bride by saving us from our sins. And that's what he did by means of his perfect obedience and his atoning death and resurrection. Strangely, though, Jesus' victory didn't come like Joshua's victories. For Joshua to be victorious over his enemies, Joshua had to be sure to live. 
for Jesus to be victorious over his enemies and ours, Jesus had to die. That is, to destroy the works of the devil, as 1 John 3 puts it, and indeed to destroy eventually the devil himself, Jesus had to die on the cross. He had to suffer in the place of his people. He had to suffer the wrath of God that our sins deserve. Jesus was sinless, but he took on our sins, and he suffered as though they were his own sins, so that God would be just in declaring us forgiven and in justifying us with Christ's own righteousness. And that victory over sin and death and hell, Christian, has been accomplished for you now. Spiritually, you dwell in Emmanuel's land now. You have been brought in and with Christ back to God, into the Holy of Holies, no longer exiled. And yet, the conquering days continue, don't they? Up to the present day. The promised land isn't fully ours yet. We're still plundering the enemy by the church and our gospel proclamation. God is still taking souls from the enemy. We're almost home, but we're not home yet. We're still at battle. It's still wartime. And it's going to be wartime until the Lord Jesus returns and lays waste and we with him to any person any demon of hell who has opposed him and his people. And when he comes to judge the living and the dead and casts Satan and his demons and every person without faith in him into the eternal lake of fire. And on that day, brothers and sisters, the greater Joshua will entirely finish what he started. No more enemies for his people. No more sin. No more death. No more sorrow or mourning or pain anymore. All our swords finally will be laid down. We'll beat them into plowshares and we'll have peace and rest with Jesus in resurrection bodies. And not just from the wilderness to Lebanon and from the great sea to the Euphrates, but in an entirely restored universe. The promised land that the greater Joshua is getting God's people to is a renewed creation. New heaven and new earth where finally the dwelling place of God is with man. That's where we're headed, brothers and sisters. And you ought to trust in the greater Joshua to get you there, to accomplish entire victory over his enemies and yours. Now, when God saves a person... He causes him or her no longer to be a slave to sin. Now we're slaves to righteousness. But our own experience and the testimony of Scripture is that though we're no longer slaves to sin, it's not as though we no longer sin. And so when you're discouraged because of your sin, or when you're discouraged because of somebody else's sin, or when you're discouraged because of a circumstance that doesn't have to do with your sin at all, but has still arrived at your doorstep, how do you respond? You trust that the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming one day, maybe today, and he's going to set all things to right. He's going to balance all the books He's going to restore this universe. Gone will be any of the things that plague his people. Gone eternally. In resurrection bodies, we'll see his face. We'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. Let those truths, brothers and sisters, comfort you and encourage you and assure you and strengthen you. The promised Holy Spirit that already lives inside of each of us proves that these things are going to happen. And the Spirit serves as the fathers and sons promise that whatever aspects of salvation that are yet to come will surely come. So let these truths be a well that you draw from and drink deeply from when you're anxious or discontent or distressed. Trust in the greater Joshua to accomplish entire victory over his enemies and yours. And secondly, trusting in the greater Joshua is our grounding for being strong and courageous. 
This is not altogether unlike the first application point I made, but it would have been lonely to just have one. God says to you, believer, to be strong and courageous amid your financial woes, amid your health woes. God says to you to be strong and courageous amid relationships that aren't right, amid whatever circumstances tempt you to be worried or discouraged or depressed. Be strong and courageous, believer, because God is with you. His Spirit indwells you. He will not leave you or forsake you. He is with you wherever you go. He has conquered your sin by His Son's death and resurrection for you, and He will raise you at the last day to be with Him forever. Now, there are some wrong ways to understand those promises. God being with you doesn't mean that your financial woes or health woes or relationship trouble or whatever other circumstance is going to get solved. It doesn't mean that. Don't understand the promise that way. In fact, I have a better promise for you to embrace. He promising to be with you and never to leave you or forsake you says that you can be strong and courageous because I've saved you. And because one day I'm going to finish the saving work I've begun in you. And it's that promise, brothers and sisters, not promise to fix temporarily some circumstance you're facing. That salvation promise is why we can be strong and courageous. Because we know our enemies, God's enemies' days are numbered. And he's going to get us to a place where our days won't be numbered anymore. The book of Joshua is finally about the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the charge that Joshua received from the Lord in our text today to lead God's people into the land that he's promised them, that's the charge that Jesus received. Joshua answered the charge by driving out the Canaanites. Jesus more fully answered the charge by dying and being raised from the dead putting all of his enemies to open shame by rescuing us from sin and death. And even now, his conquering work continues until at last we have rest and peace from enemies on every side, eternally in his presence. And so, brothers and sisters, you can be strong and courageous because he is going to get us home. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you that your promises to Joshua, which we see from this book, you kept, are promises that finally resolve in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've already begun to keep those promises, and we can be sure that you will keep all of your saving promises for your people. So, Lord, I pray that you'd give us grace to be strong and courageous in you for your sake, trusting that the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to win. He's going to have full victory, and we with him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.